Welcome to HiRise, Graystar's Desert Region Podcast, your home for multifamily news, data, and insider secrets from operators with boots on the ground. I'm your host, Ian Dangerfield, real estate associate with Graystar. In this episode, I had the chance to talk with Tommy Zauder, Graystar's Senior Director of Real Estate in Las Vegas. In this interview, he shares insights into the Las Vegas recovery and the massive investment in the form of development and redevelopment currently underway. Before we hear from Tommy, let's take a look at some data with Nick from Radix. I'm really excited to introduce in this episode, our data section will be presented by Radix, which is a shared data ecosystem providing owners and operators access to real-time operational metrics to facilitate faster business decisions. With me, I have Nick Sakora. And Nick, could you give a little introduction to yourself? Hi, Ian. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Like you stated, my name is Nick Sikora. I am the Vice President of Client Success for Radix. I've been in the multifamily industry since 2009. Uh, I started off doing acquisitions for uh, private real estate company out of California. I switched over to asset management, so I've seen that side of the world. Uh, after doing that, you know, for a few great years, I moved over to originating mortgage loans for multifamily owners and for multifamily assets in the industry. And then finally in 2017, joined Radix you know, as, as one of the early employees to help grow this company. I'm really excited to have you on and thank you for sharing your experience and expertise with us. And as I mentioned previously, Radix offers real-time information. How recent are these numbers that you're going to be mentioning? So the, the data that we're talking about is going to be as recently updated as last week through our shared ecosystem. Uh, the concept of that is each on-site team or the person that knows their property best has the ability every week to update this information. So how are Phoenix and Las Vegas doing compared to national numbers today? Absolutely. National numbers are not looking too bad at all, but Phoenix and Las Vegas are cranking still. At, you know, talk about some data points that we're all familiar with. You know, occupancy and leased nationally are in the high 95 to 97% range, respectively. You come to the Phoenix and Las Vegas markets, and on average, those metrics are 50 to 125 basis points or half a point to 1.25% higher than the national average. And then you look at rent growth, particularly over the last 90 days. And nationally, I mean, we've seen an incredible rent growth of nine and a quarter percent over the last 90 days. So that's three months. In Phoenix, we're seeing 50 basis points higher growth. So 9.9% and in Vegas, even beyond that at 10.4% rent growth in the, in the last 90 days. And, and let it be restated that this is 90-day growth. This isn't year over year, and those are some insane, insane growth numbers. And what, on the micro level for these markets, what are driving those numbers? Hey, Ian, can I just bring back a point real quick to 90-day? It's 90 days also as of last week. Yes, so yep. Current, current data. Current numbers, yeah. absolutely. So what are driving these numbers? It's a good question. So, you know, Low inventory, right? When your occupancy is in the high 90s, your lease is in even higher 90s, almost 99%, you, there's not a lot out there, right? So that definitely you know, affords the ability to see these massive increases. Uh, demand for these markets is another thing, right? It's when you look you know, around the country, Phoenix and Las Vegas really have a favorable affordability index. Uh, your dollar goes a lot farther. You get you know, this quality of lifestyle for, you know, less, quite frankly, than, uh, you know, a lot of other areas. So that's definitely a big driver. And then, so another thing that we're seeing 
and this is you know, new kind of post-pandemic, is the work-from-home dynamic and the need for increased space. And these two markets, you know, we're known for our larger units and you know, the ability for people to get you know, move up into that space uh, has been a huge driver. And I've been noticing that twos and threes seem to be occupied and leased at a higher percentage. Are you guys seeing the same thing? And do you think it's because of this work from home aspect? We're, we're absolutely seeing, you know, rent growth in those two and three bedrooms exceed what we're seeing on the national average, which would kind of lead to, hey, there's a lot more demand for those, those units. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, does that also kind of provide a argument for the single family rental, those, those BTR type builds? Absolutely. I think it's a great, it's a great case study for the desirability of these, of these uh, build to rent uh, communities. Uh, you know, it's a unique product. It's really delivering something to tenants that they don't have uh, unless they were to step up into a single family you know, for sale product. Right. And because prices in that world are moving up even faster than <laughs> we're seeing anywhere else, there's not a $200,000 starter condo or home anymore, right? So it's, it's, it's the build to rent product that's fulfilling those needs. What meaningful trends have you been seeing emerge over the last few weeks? Yeah, so some of the meaningful trends that we're watching emerge over the last few weeks, uh, particularly one of them is the tapering in occupancy. So that's kind of leveled out. The occupancy growth has leveled off in Phoenix and Las Vegas recently. Uh, I think that's a byproduct of a couple of different things, right? You know, operators are testing higher rents, right? When you have occupancy in the high 90s, you have the liberty to push rent, right? And Tesla's high watermarks. And eventually, you know, you, you hit an area where you can no longer do that. I think that area that we found is due to uh, seasonality in these two markets. We're in the middle of summer. It's hot. School, you know, school doesn't start or for another few months. So there's no pressure to move into a new place before, you know, you see that need. Uh, and so we're just seeing you know, this little bit of a slowdown due to kind of some general or, or reoccurring economic factors. And are people sticking in their leases or what do those numbers look like in terms of the, uh, the available units to rent when people go on notice? Are they renewing or what do those look like? Absolutely. Really good question. Uh, that apartments to rent is another forward-looking metric that we like to keep an eye on. Uh, so, and, and that's the number of notices, right? Vacant or notice units as a percent and in both of these markets, it's been trending down over the last 90 days and is in the 3 to 4% range, which would back up and justify that, hey, these occupancies in the high 90s are, are probably here to stay for a little bit while, a little longer. With the eviction moratorium expiring potentially on the 30th of July, do you see that impacting the markets in a big way? What do you see happening? Truthfully, I mean, we've seen that thing bumped out a few times, but just given the really strong economics in these markets and that, just to restate the low inventory, the high housing pricing for you know purchases, the the affordability index that's very favorable, you know, the job growth, all these things that we're seeing, I don't I don't foresee that having a ma massive impact on any of the numbers as it pertains to the multifamily world. Uh, we are looking at just the the volume of tours or traffic per week, right? As we go on the eviction moratorium, we're kind of seeing it more as a shuffle, right? People are gonna ha are gonna be moving out and looking for new places. That'll manifest itself in our traffic numbers 
uh, for each market. So outside of that, you know, there's not a necessarily, uh, there's not a good reason for anybody to move out of these markets. And so, you know, the cars will fall where they are. They'll start to, you know, people will find living in these markets. Absolutely. So yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on and sharing these data points. And thanks to Radix for providing this information that is so current and fresh. It's good to have you on. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate the opportunity. That's it for the data. Let's jump into the interview. Tommy Zouder oversees a portfolio consisting over 8,500 units across the class and size spectrum, active in the multifamily industry in Nevada since 2004. His expertise includes budgeting, forecasting, capital improvement strategy, investor relations, and property rehabilitation. Tommy is actively involved with operations and legislative endeavors of the National Apartment Association and local NAA affiliate, the Nevada State Apartment Association. Tommy has served as a board member of the NBSAA since 2014 and was president of the association in 2018. Prior to joining Graystar, Tommy spent 16 years at Alliance, starting as a leasing agent in 2004 and holding numerous leadership positions at both the on-site and corporate level, including regional vice president. He studied political science at the University of Nevada and is currently a CPM candidate. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Welcome, Tommy, to High Rise. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Ian. Now, you're a very unique operator, starting as a leasing associate and having worked nearly every type of position, both on-site and corporate, to now being the senior director for Las Vegas. Few people have had your breadth and depth of knowledge of multifamily in the Las Vegas market. In what way has your perspective of property management changed through working in your various positions? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I mean, I would say fundamentally, I don't feel like it's changed much. And when I say that, I, I'm still very passionate about providing great housing, uh, regardless of the class of the property. So class A, B, or C, I think everybody deserves that great housing experience. And that's, and that's what we're here to provide. So I think fundamentally it's, it's the same from when I was starting off as a sales associate to where I'm at now. I think what's what's changed most is when you move off site um, operationally, you have to adjust. So instead of being as involved with the day to day operations of the property, I'm looking at things from a much broader perspective um, and then also working directly with clients to find them new deals versus just looking at the real estate we currently manage. It's also looking at uh, properties that could come to market are on the market or maybe off market and trying to see how we can put those in front of our, our clients so they can have another good investment in our city. Um, what I, what I miss, I'd say I miss being on site. I miss the interactions with the residents and the, you know, the positive interactions you'd have, uh, cause there are a lot of positives. I think that's, that's probably what I miss about being on site, but I still look at it from the same perspective that bottom line, our job is to provide good housing. Now, not only do I look at that from a, perspective that we're looking for a good housing experience for our residents. But I also look at it as, well, I want my clients to have a good investment and I want them to have a, a good return on that investment and, and make sure that's profitable depending on whatever their business plan may be. Right. And I, I'm sure that perspective helped with last year, all the disruptions and Vegas was kind of a different beast than any other markets because of the dependency on travel and entertainment. For those unfamiliar, could you outline some of the challenges that hit our industry in Las Vegas last year? Sure. So, so similar to the entire world and the United States, you know, we all had the enjoyment of the coronavirus and uh, what it did to our our economy and what it did to our cities. Vegas is so heavily reliant on the tourism industry 
Vegas completely shut down. I mean, to the point where some of the casinos initially had boarded up entrances. Uh, there was just no activity. The lights were out at night. They weren't spending money to keep the marquees on. And so I know plenty of families that actually took a, a bike ride literally down the middle of the strip during the pandemic, which is unprecedented. Typically the strip is full of people and, and tourists. And yet now it became somewhat of this family draw for the, for Las Vegas, where you could go down there and actually take a bike ride down the strip. And it was quiet and there were virtually no cars. Um, and that, and that really unfortunately resulted in our unemployment, of course, got up to around 30%. Um, evictions weren't happening. So we really, as much fun as that may sound, the impact of the economy was fairly detrimental for the period of time that we were in the lockdown. And then we slowly were able to reopen and we gained capacity with, with each new step as we saw our cases decline. Uh, and then now we're back to a fully reopened city that is uh, having no restrictions. Mass mandates have been removed for those that have been vaccinated. So we've kind of come full circle in the year from being to where casinos were shuttered, which is unprecedented for our city, uh, unemployment topping over 30%. Now we're back to the position where things are reopened and we're feeling more normal. Mm -hmm. And what's the tone of investors and developers right now? Are they feeling more bullish about the Las Vegas market? Or are they still watching to see how uh, things develop? I would say Vegas is on fire. I mean, we, we're seeing properties come to market at a, I think a record pace or there's every week, there's a new community that's, that's coming to market. And, um, you're seeing these prices on, on what they're selling for get bid up as you have individuals that have kind of, they have funds that they want to invest somewhere last year, they really didn't get the opportunity to. So they are jumping at it. And I think what everyone's wanting to do is get in on that ability to grow rents right now, uh, lease over lease trade out, um, at some communities is 20%. And so you have this significant rent growth that everybody's really trying to get a piece of uh, and get in while there's still the momentum in the market um, to get in while the time is right. And, and there is just a lot of, of positive news for Vegas uh, and a lot of interest. So you are seeing folks who would have been able to get a deal two years ago are really kind of getting priced out at the moment because there are uh, a lot of groups that are bidding at the moment. And in terms of Las Vegas economy, how is Las Vegas diversifying its employment sectors beyond travel and entertainment to avoid such a large impact if something like this happens in the future? You know, so we when the first recession happened, you know, we took a good note from that because we got hit um, fairly hard and it took us a while to come out of it. So we, we learned to diversify, really looked our city leaders, our mayors, our governor looked for ways to diversify. And so we looked to companies like Switch, uh, which is a data center, um, to come in and, and have the data centers here. And that's been a good part of it. You know, we're relying on the tech industry to do that. Um, we have two, um, we have NHL and NFL, so two national sports teams now that are in the city. And what I think that does is that also helps bring in a different type of employment. You know, it's, it's still tourism focused, but it's not gambling and entertainment it's it's entertainment but through sports and so that's a different individual maybe that would have come to vegas before when they were coming here to go watch a show uh go eat at a five-star restaurant go and gamble now they're coming here to watch a football game or now they're coming here to watch a hockey game and then they're staying and they're doing other things while they're here they're eating um, and with that especially with the raider stadium 
it's in a part of town where there is the ability to grow and it's being called a stadium district. So that's going to get new retail restaurants and that's all over, you know, call it a 10 year time frame. But those are also construction jobs that are going to continue in the market. So I think that's been a really good help for us. Uh, Amazon has opened two new distribution centers, uh, one in the northeast and then one in the uh, southwest part of Henderson. So that's been nice to have those added in. And then healthcare is another part of our sector that's been growing quite a bit um, since the first recession occurred. Uh, we're adding specialty care centers. UNLV is actually opening a school of medicine, an actual campus where now it's kind of just been a hodgepodge of different buildings that they've grouped together in a, in a part of town where we have our university medical center. They're actually now going to be building a school of medicine there. Um, and that just all supports you know, the increasing number of retirees that are deciding to retire here in Las Vegas. So you mentioned the, the stadium district and all of the new developments, the new retail that's going to kind of sprout up around there over the next 10 years. Are there any other developments being added to the growth of Vegas? Yeah, so there's there's a it's called the Uncommons Project, and that's in a part of town off the 215 Expressway in Durango. Uh, if you're looking at a map of Las Vegas, it's it's in the southwest corner and it's it's in an area where it's all dirt or desert and everything else around it is kind of filled in. You have homes, you have some uh, some retail centers, a couple of car dealerships over there. So the Uncommons is a project that's a $400 million development. It's going to have about 500,000 square feet of office, about a thousand residential units, entertainment venues, restaurants, a food hall. So that's a really good addition to that part of town because you kind of have a lack of entertainment in that area everything's just it's it's scattered around so there's an ikea in that area and of course ikeas are always great so it's going to be a nice way to to anchor that part of the valley and that'll play off of the summerlin submarket as well where you have downtown summerlin and then you also have resorts world uh, which opened on june 24th um, that adds six thousand new jobs and it really it's the first casino uh, to open on the Strip since 2004. So when the Cosmopolitan opened in 2004, that was the last time we actually had a casino open on the Strip. So that that's, I think, really huge to our, our industry is just seeing, hey, look, there's still investment happening on the Strip. You have this huge mega resort like Resorts World opening up on a, on a part of the Strip that, you know, you have the Wynn, um, that's a newer part, but everything else on that part of the Strip tends to be a little bit older, so it's a good sign that the redevelopment of the North Las Vegas Strip is going to happen. So I think those those are two really large ones here. There's a lot of other projects that are happening throughout the valley, but those two especially are, are good signs that our economy is in the right direction. Well, that's really outstanding news for for people that aren't inundated with you know more of the details of the Las Vegas market. From the outside, it might sound like you know more doom and gloom. But from what I'm hearing from you, there's so much opportunity and growth right now that people are jumping at, at every opportunity to continue to grow Las Vegas because there's there's a lot of ROI there. There, there is. And uh, again, having the, the football team here with the Raiders, you know, the Raiders have added their uh, their headquarters in the southwest part of Henderson. Um, so that part of the city there as well, they have a similar project on Commons being planned. Um, just it's it's all kind of about bringing the entertainment back to some of the neighborhoods and uh, revitalizing those off strip locations. Because right now, a lot of the you know, if you're a resident of Las Vegas, you go to the strip, but you don't go maybe as often as people would expect that you would. So having good venues, 
to go see uh, a movie or even see a show or a concert, eat at a restaurant that are set away from the strip are really important to the locals. And um, those type of projects like Uncommons are, are really good for the neighborhoods that they sit in. Mm-hmm. And what are your market projections for the second half of 2021? Oh, that's the second half of 2021. I think it's going to continue to be a really good year for us. We're really just recovering on what we didn't see happen in 2020. And um, I think rents are going to continue to grow as we move through the backlog of evictions. So I think that's going to support more rent growth. And then I think with most of the operators here getting ahead of the evictions that are going to occur, you know, we've put them on notice, we've had them pre-leased. And so once the evictions do occur, we have new residents set to move in. We're going to really not miss a beat, hopefully, with reoccupying those units that are evicted. So I don't think we're going to find ourselves in a, in a situation where we have uh, too much inventory. I think we're going to balance it out just right. You combine that with home prices in the Valley being at all time highs, um, causing some individuals to be priced out of home ownership and falling back into the apartment market or just to say, hey, I'm going to stay in an apartment and really see what's going to happen with the um, with new home sales and um, home sales in general. So I think that's going to keep our occupancies high, continue with the, the positive rent growth that we've seen. Uh, and I think that's all good for us. I mean, I really think that's going to help us out. And then again, I talk about uh, the, the new residents that are coming into the Valley. Four out of 10 of our new residents are coming from California. So we saw about a 1.8% population growth over last year. And with 40% of those new residents being from California, they have a higher expectation of what rent should be. And it allows us to bring our rents up and continue to do that and then hold on to them and not have to make a backward pedal with our rents. And as we see an adjustment in the market that may occur, I think we're going to be able to hold our rents. Um, so I really think the re- the second half of 2021 is going to continue to be a great year for, uh, for Las Vegas. That's excellent. And now I'm personally curious how you stay so well-informed on the market because all of these questions right off the top of your head, you have very detailed answers. Could you share some of your secrets of how you stay so well-informed? Just reading. <laughs> I think, I think that's the biggest thing. There's, there's so many great uh, companies like Axio, CBRE, CoStar, they all provide some great reports on the market and they do it quarterly. Some do it monthly. Um, they do state of the city addresses. And so by paying attention to the various, um, research groups that put out their information, you're able to kind of put it together and make sense of it. UNLV will also provide us some great stats. You know, they, they keep us up to date on what we're seeing for positive in-migration of new residents, where they're coming from. Um, so that that's like number one is you just have to know what research is out there, what's available to you. And then talking to your competitors, so having good relationships with the competitors in the market and, and having an open door policy to just discuss what, what they're seeing, what you're seeing. And, you know, in that way, you're collaborating to make sure that we as a city, although they may be a competitor, we all have a common goal, not only for ourselves, but for our clients to, to grow their income and, and to keep everything moving in the right direction. Um, and then just my own portfolio, watching the trends that are occurring, trying to understand the data that we have access to and, and what it's doing in the different sub markets or in the city as a, as a whole. Uh, and then again, going back to reading, <laughs> the local newspapers are always good. Um, website called Vegas Inc. is always good to give you some insight to what's happening in the city, uh, what new businesses might be coming in. 
Um, and then, of course, any industry publications where they may be mentioning Vegas, that's always some good info. So I think a lot of it's reading and um, using the resources that are available to you. Yeah, just really taking that time to to read and have those conversations makes makes a lot of sense. Now, multifamily property management is not an easy industry. Trying to lead a team that delivers on the expectations of a client and residents will always be a challenge. It's that much harder when there's a fire to put out, sometimes literally. What are some types of emergencies you've handled in the past? So since I, I started on site, I think I have, I've, I've had, uh, I've experienced everything. And, you know, luckily for us here in Las Vegas, we don't see a lot of the natural disasters that we see occur in other parts of the country, which, which is good for us, you know, outside of uh, a lack of rain or uh, oppressive heat, we don't tend to see earthquakes or uh, we don't have tornadoes or hurricanes. We're really lucky that we don't experience that. So then our emergencies come in the form of a lot of times it's fire, flood, uh, or when someone is maybe having a bad day or having a mental health issue, we of course will experience that when we're on site. So, I mean, really anything that could occur outside of natural disasters, I've had the experience of being involved with in some form or the other. Uh, I think the ones that are, of course, the ones that are most challenging are uh, when somebody passed away in their apartment and um, you or a team member discovers it, you know, going through that trauma and then the family as they come in uh, or when someone is having maybe a mental health crisis and it's it's taking the format of uh, hostility or violence. And and that's occurring at your community where there's a police standoff or someone actively uh, walking around your community, maybe with a weapon. That's those, I think, are the worst ones because they have an impact on on yourself or your team and and also your residents. And so that's those are maybe some of the worst ones that you can see happen uh, in your community. And how do you handle these rare emergencies? Is there a, a story or example? Well, I, I think it's you lean on your experience and your training. I, I think that's why it's important. Um, you know, we have we have emergency preparedness plans that cover multiple different types of scenarios. Probably the one that I experienced when I was an on-site manager that, that kind of has stayed with me the longest because it was a really long night. Uh, it was about 2 a.m. Got a call. We had a police standoff with uh, one of our residents and police were there and surrounded it. Um, they had fired a few shots off towards the police. Um, so I had to respond to the community. We had to evacuate four or five buildings and it's, it's middle of the night. So, you know, we, we want to take care of our residents. So we opened the clubhouse, run down to the store. There's really not much I could do on site other than provide a place for residents to hang out, went to the store, got some, some water, juice, um, some breakfast items, you know, just some things to keep our residents comfortable as we kind of work through the situation that was occurring. Uh, unfortunately, it ended up in a, an officer involved shooting where um, the resident was uh, killed after shooting back at the police. And, you know, unfortunately came out, he was on a four or five day nonstop binge on meth, hadn't slept. And uh, he, he finally broke. And this is where it ended up. Um, thank goodness nobody was hurt outside of the, the individual who caused the, the situation to start. But, you know, that that's always really, I think, the difficult one because your residents are displaced. They're out of their home middle of the night. You know, mm -hmm. that's a horrible feeling. So our job really is provide the most comfortable setting we can for them. And then as quickly as possible, work with the police agencies or medical agencies to get residents back into their home. Uh, and then, you know, after the fact that you're going to have a lot of residents who, who have 
some valid concerns that you want to talk through and still make them feel comfortable in their home and, and keep them as residents. Yeah. That, that sounds like a very, very intense situation. How do you, and I know that the, it's not a, a frequent thing that happens. That's why these are emergencies. They're, they're rare uh, occurrences. How do you make sure your team is prepared to handle these types of emergencies? It, it, great question. And I think the, the ones that happen most often are your floods, uh, your fires. And, and those, luckily, we have great business partners um, that we rely on, the, the vendors that will come out and they do you know, the mitigation. They help you dry the unit, cut out any drywall that's been affected. Um, in some cases, you want to put the resident in a hotel, depending on the situation, or they have resident insurance that will assist with that. So really, it's it's through training. It, it's making sure that your managers and your, your service supervisor, your teams in general, all know how to handle the, the issues that may arise, the emergencies they may have to deal with. So going back to kind of that emergency preparedness plan um, that you want to have for multiple different types of emergencies and understand who does what and when, having a map, where are your shutoffs, where's your gas shutoff, where's your sewer cleanouts, where's your water main shutoffs? Because sometimes having somebody, you know, just a tech that maybe is new to your property, if he knows where to go to find out where a shutoff is, he can stop the flood uh, quickly, and then that mitigates any type of damage that may uh, may be occurring. And of course, it saves our ownership money, which is our ultimate goal. What is the potential risk to a client using a manager that doesn't have that experience to handle those emergencies? So the the risk could be huge if if the initial emergency is not handled correctly and the proper follow up or follow through isn't completed correctly, you could see liability arise from your tenants or just further damage that may occur. And you have a flood. We all know the biggest thing is drying it out, stopping the leak, getting rid of effective material, getting the water out and then getting it to dry out. If you just stop the leak, suck the water out of the carpet, call it a day, there's all that moisture inside the wall and it's eventually going to grow and lead to something that we don't want to have happen. And then of course, if that's a, an apartment that actually has residents in it or ends up becoming occupied, there's the potential to expose people to um, something that you don't want them exposed to. So if you don't do it right the first time in the long run, it's going to come back and get you and it's going to either cost you money through uh, somebody bringing a lawsuit against you or just further mitigation of the damage that would have been a much smaller put back initially of a unit versus waiting until you have a lot of growth of something or bigger moisture issues that could occur. And is it sufficient to only have the, you know, the, like the written operating procedures for the, the team to follow, or is there that much added value to having team members who've experienced these things to train those new managers in the, in the proper way to handle those situations? Yeah, that, I mean, the, the handbooks are always great, but I think, yeah, hands-on experience is number one. Uh, and, and if you are new and you haven't experienced this, so if it's something you've, you've never have happened, because that does happen, you may have been a manager for a while and you've never dealt with emergency A, um, having resources to go to, your regional, your regional maintenance manager, having somebody that you can go to who can talk you through the proper ways, or even just a team member, who has experience it, who can take you through the proper ways to mitigate the damage that's occurred, um, make sure the residents are taken care of and and oversee the process from start to finish. That's huge as well. That's, that's why I really think filling out an incident report, following the list, asking for help, having your training, all of those combined, make sure that when emergencies occur, you know, you're able to uh, address them effectively and 
uh, mitigate any losses that you may experience. Absolutely. Having those experienced team members to lean on um, with the potentially less experienced ones is is huge in correctly handling those emergencies, thereby saving the client money. So I think that's excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, hop on this uh, interview with me. I've learned a lot personally, and I hope that our audience has gotten some key takeaways as well. Thank you again. Absolutely, Ian. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you enjoy this program, let us know by subscribing or send us feedback via the link in the description. You can also sign up for our newsletter. The link for that is also in the description. Thanks for listening to High Rise. Thank you.